We are uh, in a series right now that is entitled, That's Outrageous. And it is a series that uh, is addressing the fact that we are living in an age of outrage, a, a world that's just so stirred up about so many things, people outraged about everything from A to Z. And we're, we're asking the basic question, what is our calling and how we're supposed to respond in the midst of such an, an age of outrage? What should we be saying and doing in response to all of this? So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. And while you're going there, I'm just going to say a disclaimer on the front end. This is not going to go uh, into the top ten list of sermons that you've ever heard. This is not going to probably be a really popular word today. This is not going to be a message that you'll hear on TV very frequently because this is, it is a challenging word to hear. It is a challenging word to deliver as we consider the outrageous call that is placed on us to selfless living, outrageous selflessness, outrageous sacrifice that we're called to. You know, if, um, if I were to ask you today, would you be willing to join me in watching an Ironman triathlon? You know what I mean when I say Ironman. Not, not the little sprint triathlons you see around here, but an Ironman where people swim 2.4 miles and then they bike 112 miles and then they run 26.2 miles. That's outrageous, isn't it? Uh, they've got to be doing these things in hell because it sounds like hell to me to, to think of doing that. Now, but if I ask you to join me in watching one of those, I bet a lot of you would say, yes, I would do that. I, I would join you in watching that. We're, some of us are starved for sports anyway, so we, for no other reason. We'd, we'd watch just to fill that gap in our lives. But imagine how quickly hands would go down if I changed the ask and I said, how many of you today would commit to join me in training for an Ironman and then in actually doing an Ironman? Don't you know a lot of hands that are up here would suddenly be in, in our laps going, don't think I want to do that. Well, to me, that pretty well illustrates a major gap and real tragedy that I see happening in the church, especially in the Western church in the American church, where I am afraid that many of us have fallen into that place of, of sort of believing that the Christian life is about admiring Jesus. It's about being a spectator of what Jesus has done and what he's about and being a fan of Jesus and what he taught. When in fact, that's not the case at all. Jesus was never in the business of collecting fans. When he called people to be his followers, he was calling them to join him in what he was doing. Being a Christian isn't about believing in the crucifixion. It is about being crucified with Christ. It's exactly what Paul said. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. But we live in an age where that's not the message that we're hearing. I mean, think of it this way. Consider if you could somehow wipe the slate completely clean so that all that you knew of Christianity is what you found in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, and specifically in the Gospels. What if the only thing that you knew of Christianity is what Jesus taught and did in the Gospels? How radically different would our view of Christianity be then? I mean, lay that idea alongside of the American version of Christianity that has so frequently said, it's not going to really cost you anything to follow Jesus. He's the one that paid all the price, so it's not going to cost you anything. 
all you really need to do is say this little prayer and then it's all going to be so much better. Life is going to be better. It's going to be so much easier. Could anything be further from what Jesus actually said and taught? That's a million miles from the teachings of Jesus. We are in desperate need of of having to unlearn so much of what we have been led to believe is Christianity that is not. I mean, give Jesus credit. He was up front. He didn't pull any punches. In fact, over and over, when Jesus would perform miracles and meet needs and thousands of people would come flocking around him, then Jesus would step up and he would give a real honest talk about what it meant to be a follower of his. And suddenly, instead of having thousands following him, he'd be back down to 12 again. We see this cycle repeated again and again. The, the masses come to Jesus, and then Jesus says, well, here's what it's going to be like. Birds have nests, foxes have dens, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Well, that doesn't sound so appealing. Over and over, he's telling them, count the cost. You don't set out to, to build something without figuring out in advance what it's going to cost you to finish it. Don't follow me unless you've counted the cost of what it's going to take for you to faithfully follow me all the way to the end there's a good reason why jesus didn't have a lot of disciples because there was such a high price attached to being a follower of jesus we have lost in in much of the american church a key sense of what it means to be a disciple of jesus and the key piece that we have lost is a life of selflessness and sacrifice i'm going to just say it as plainly as i know how You cannot be a follower of Jesus without learning to live a selfless and sacrificial life. It doesn't mean that you necessarily are going to have to physically bleed and die as a martyr, but you cannot follow Jesus and it not be a costly thing for you. And all of these guys who are making a lot of money sharing their message over the airwaves about how healthy and prosperous and wonderful life is going to be if you'll just really have faith regardless of what they've tried to sell you and peddle. That is not the message of Jesus. It's costly to follow Jesus. Let's turn our attention to Matthew 16. And just to set the stage for what I'm about to read, this is a real turning point in Jesus' ministry. The disciples have been with him for three years. He's been doing public ministry for three years now. And they are... The the twelve are beginning to get who Jesus is. We think that they're so slow to learn, but it was it was just such a radical shift from what they had expected Jesus to be. And so they're they're catching on to who he is, but Jesus has never really come clean yet about what the heart of his mission really is. And starting with the passage that we're about to read, Jesus is going to just turn things on a dime. He, he's taken them away the furthest that they've ever been from the heart of Israel. He's taken them way up north to Caesarea Philippi, sort of on a retreat. And there he's had a real heart-to-heart with them, saying, you know, who do people say that I am? Who do you understand that I am? And in the course of this conversation, Jesus is going to like draw a line in the sand and say, from this point forward... I'm not going to let there be any mystery about what's ahead. I'm going to tell you plainly what is coming. Because he's now setting his face for Jerusalem. He is beginning a six-month-long march toward Jerusalem and the cross. And he understands exactly what is ahead. And now, not in vague terms, not with any mystery attached, Jesus is going to spell out plainly, here is what's coming. 
consistently, day by day and week by week, he's going to tell them this message again and again until he winds up in Jerusalem for Passover week. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Can you imagine what a shocker that had to be just to hear that? And the disciples just couldn't take it at face value. You can only imagine how they're, they're looking at each other going, okay, what kind of parable is this? It's like, is this like the story of, of the sower of the seeds and that symbolize something? What does that symbolize? Jesus going, there is no parable. There is no symbolism. He is speaking as literally as he can. We are going to Jerusalem. The religious leaders are going to arrest me. They're going to abuse me. And then they're going to kill me. And you're going to watch this happen. They can't get it. And, and here's Peter now. Remember, Peter's one of Jesus' two closest friends. So this isn't an outlier who's saying this. This isn't uh, some skeptic. This is a close, close buddy who responds to Jesus in verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. I almost get the feeling in a moment like this that Peter is sort of playing the part of Jesus' campaign manager. You know, we're trying to get Jesus into power. We're trying to get him to be the new king of Israel. And, and this is one of those moments where the campaign manager's got to pull the candidate aside and say, Lord, no, 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 I'm sorry. That message is not going to play well with the public. I, I can just tell you, you're going to take a dive in the polls here. We're going to have to do away with this talk of, of cross and suffering and, and all of that. Listen, that doesn't play well. We, we don't want to talk about crosses we don't want to talk about coronavirus here's what we want more of jesus we we want more of of talk about victory we want to hear talk about getting rid of those romans we want those those outsiders gone so let's talk about building a wall let's talk about race issues let's talk about fishes and loaves in everybody's basket jesus let's get back on on task with the message here are you good with that no jesus is not good with that Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus is not worried about how his message is going to land. You need to understand, this is the heart of my mission. And then Jesus turns his, his attention from Peter to all the disciples. And he says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Feel the weight of those words. Nobody in the first century is wearing a cross on a gold chain around their neck. It's nothing but a symbol of death. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Jesus said a lot in a few sentences there, didn't he? And it does not sound like anything that I hear being preached from the major platforms of America. I mean, do you, Brad? I, this is just not the message that I hear. It's like we've carved passages like this out of the Bible, and yet this is typical of the New Testament. 
There's a lot here, but there are four truths that I want to make sure that we don't miss as we consider Jesus' call to a selfless life. And the first, if you want to pull out your outlines and follow along, the first thing that I want you to notice is that personal sacrifice is a core value for those who follow Jesus. I think most of us who've grown up in the church think of of a selfless life of sacrifice and suffering as an unfortunate little side effect that tragically is going to come to some. There's going to be some little fringe of people, maybe those super committed ones, who have to go someplace strange, extreme, or remote. And unfortunately, the the result of that, just one of the spinoff effects, is that they may have to suffer for the cause of Christ. And that is not the message of the Gospels. Sacrifice, suffering, and selflessness, this is a core part of the Christian message. When Jesus began to spell out in verse 21 that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem to suffer these terrible things and to be crucified, it's not like, well, guys, unfortunately, there is this little piece that I've got to add to this. You know, you've seen what my mission's all about, helping people, teaching, preaching, deliverance and feeding, all of that stuff. That's what it's all been about. But I am going to have this little detour where I'm going to have to go to the cross and die, but I'll rise again and we'll get that all behind us. That is not the message of Jesus. The mission of Jesus is that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. And to those who would follow him, who would place their faith in him, he says, if you would join me, understand you must deny yourselves and take up your cross. And follow what I'm doing. It's a core value. Not a a tragic spinoff effect. Now I I get it. At that statement alone we're getting uncomfortable. Wait a minute. Core value? Oh yeah. Selflessness. Sacrifice is a core value within Christianity. It seems so foreign to us because suffering is so seldom talked about in the American church because it doesn't attract crowds. But it is a major theme of the New Testament. You're going to think by the time that I've done today, done with a message today that I've gone through the New Testament and pulled out every passage that there is on suffering and sacrifice, and that's so far from the truth. I struggled immensely this week to pare this thing down to what you have before you. What you have is just the thinnest little skimming of what the New Testament has to say about sacrifice. I recently read about a conversation that a modern-day pastor in the Chinese church, a conversation that he had with an American Christian leader, and in that conversation he was expressing what it's been like to, to see the church in modern times in China. I don't know if you're aware of how the church is growing so rapidly in China today, so encouraging, tens of thousands of people coming to faith on a daily basis in China. And what he shared was, what we've all heard about, how the church has for so many years been an underground church. The government doesn't allow the church to to exist publicly, and so they meet in homes and wherever they can out of sight. And, And he had been serving in that capacity for a long time. But you may not be aware that several years ago, the Chinese government, for a season, decided to alleviate some of the restraints that they had put on the church, and they let the church, in some instances, begin to exist above ground. And this pastor was able to take part in that. And so 
he started or, or expanded what was going on there, and, and they you know, were able to get a building and actually publicly exist as a church, and it began to grow rapidly. And in a re- reasonably short span of time, it grew to about 2,000 people in attendance. Well, you can easily imagine what happened next. The government didn't like that. The government didn't anticipate such rapid growth. And so they immediately stepped in and they shut down the church and they hauled off the pastor and the other leaders of the church. And so immediately the church went back underground again. And when the pastor and the other leaders eventually were released, they went back to doing what they had done before, shepherding an underground church. The interesting thing is that here a few years later, as the pastor is being interviewed by an American church leader, He said, I am so glad that it worked out that way because what we had observed was happening during that little window of time when the church was able to begin to exist above ground is that there was such a fundamental shift in how people who were a part of the church behaved. In just a short span of time, they began to act as if going to church, going to a building, singing some songs, and listening to someone teach from the Bible for a little while as if that were the chief end of Christianity, as if the chief goal would be to show up and be a spectator at an event once a week. And he said, very quickly, we had arrived at a place where people who had been so transformational in the culture, we suddenly couldn't motivate them to do hardly anything to make a difference in their community. And he said, whenever we were shut down, in terms of our larger public gatherings, and we went back to the underground movement, he said when we did that, we returned to the five pillars of the Chinese Christian church. And then he spelled out what those five pillars are. I want to share those with you. In the Chinese church today, the five pillars of of Christian practice for them. Number one, a deep commitment to prayer for everyone. Number two, A deep commitment to the Word of God, not just to hearing it taught, but that everyone is to read and study and and get to know what the Word of God teaches for yourself. Number three is a personal commitment to soul winning and sharing the good news of what Jesus has done and the difference that he's made in your life. Now, so far, we're good with that, aren't we? We're, We're feeling pretty good about that. We may not practice all of those quite like we should, but we all can say yes and amen to those three, can't we? I mean, who can argue with that? Deep commitment to prayer, to the scriptures, and to sowing. You get to the fourth pillar, it starts maybe stretching us a bit. Because their fourth pillar is a regular expectation of miracles from God. They they fully believe that they have to operate in the realm of faith. That God works in supernaturally powerful ways to do what cannot be done in the natural. And so that is a, a fundamental piece of the church that... We're going to constantly believe God to do the impossible. And then the fifth and final pillar, and this is the one that is so hard for us to get our heads around, that they embrace suffering for the glory of God. They don't look at it as something that they might have to endure. They embrace suffering. They know that they cannot serve Christ's will in that environment without it being a costly thing. And so they pray together and privately, Oh God, use us in dangerous ways. Send us to places that it's going to be risky and costly for us to represent you. Don't just keep us in safe places. Do whatever it takes with us. They embrace the idea of suffering. And that's one of the foundational pieces of that church. 
You see, the church in China has embraced and understand what Jesus was talking about when he said in Mark 10:45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we're going to be a follower of that guy, it cannot be a consumer mentality, can it? I mean, do you realize how much consumerism has taken us over in the church? Talk to anybody who is new to a community and they are looking for their church home. Ask them what they're looking for, and they'll be quick to tell you most of the time. Well, we're just looking for the church that best meets all of our needs. We're looking for a church that offers this for our children and this for our teenagers. We're looking for this for me and for my wife. It's like we're looking for the the best, most well-stocked Walmart that's out there. We want the store that's got the most on the shelves, so we're looking for that church. How about we look for the church that's going to help us die to self and give our lives away to something that really matters? Put that on your billboard and see how many people show up we're here to help you die and bring glory to god in the process paul said in philippians 1 29 and 30 for you've been given not only the privilege of trusting christ but also the privilege of suffering for him we are in this struggle together that is a shift in how you think isn't it We don't just get the privilege of belonging to Christ and trusting Christ, but we get the privilege of suffering for Christ. Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 3 said, Join me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In another conversation that was had with a a current believer in the church in Iran, he was describing what it's like to be a part of the underground church there in Iran. You can imagine that's not an easy place. And he said, on just the front end of, of coming in the church, if you're going to join a church, as a starting point, you have to literally sign a document that says that you are willing to, to lose your property for being a follower of Jesus, that you are willing to be imprisoned for being a follower of Jesus, and that you're willing to give your life and be martyred as a follower of Jesus. And if you're not willing to sign and say, I'm willing to do any and all of the above, you don't even get to join the church. We would look at that and go, oh my goodness, that's like the most advanced version of Christianity. For those at the deepest level, the inner circle of the diagram of discipleship, that's for the inner circle. No, in the church in Iran, that's how you get in the church. That's the first line you have to cross is to say, I'm willing to give up my stuff or to be imprisoned or to die if necessary to follow Jesus. Yep, sign me up for that. We may hear that and go, well, you know, that's... Things are crazy in Iran anyway. Here's what you probably didn't know about the church in Iran. Some of the most recent studies indicate that the fastest growing evangelical Christian population on earth today is the church in Iran. Let that sink in. The oppressed church in China, 30,000 converts a day, 365 days a year. The church in Iran fastest growing evangelical christian movement on the planet how could that be how could that be in the face of such oppression well think about it how on earth do you stop a group of people 
who not only are willing to suffer, but they actually embrace suffering for the name of Jesus as a pillar of their faith. This guy that we follow came to give himself as a ransom for others. Selflessness is fundamental to Christianity. What do you do with people who are willing to suffer and die for their faith and who say, oh, bring it on. We think that God gets glory whenever we suffer in his name. Don't get me wrong, they're not a bunch of sickos. It's not that they go, whoo, it's so much fun to hurt. No, they're just saying, Jesus is so worthy. It is an honor to pay a price in order to follow him. How on earth do you stop people like that? That was the quandary of the the Jewish ruling council that was trying to stamp out the, the first century movement after Jesus ascended back into heaven and suddenly the disciples had this newfound courage and they're beating them and imprisoning them and they can't figure out what to do because it's like well we killed one of them and he came back to life so we can't kill them anymore they might come back to life we lock them up and the doors fling open i mean we beat them and they get bolder and happier what are you going to do with people like that you can't do anything with them they'll change the world and it's what's happening the second thing that i want you to notice about the passage is this is just being honest realize that our response to God's plan at times is just naturally going to be, that can't be right. That isn't fair. I mean, that's basically what Peter's response was, wasn't it? Peter took Jesus aside and told him not to talk like that. He said, God save you from those things, Lord. Those things will never happen to you. But Jesus responded, you don't care about the things of God, but only the things that people think are important. In a culture, in a Christian culture today, that has told us again and again the way that God shows his favor to his children who really trust him, who really believe him, is he protects them and keeps them healthy and he keeps their children healthy and their teeth all white and straight and he makes sure they have plenty of money in the bank and they have a healthy retirement, that this is what God does for the people that he really loves. And I mean, have you noticed, I'm not exaggerating much when I say that. This is the name it and claim it gospel that's so popular in America. God wants you to have more. Well, when you've been surrounded by that kind of thinking and that kind of teaching in this culture, it leads us to this confused position where when we experience suffering, when we experience situations that invite us to to live sacrificially and selflessly, it's easy to get confused and go, well, surely this can't be the will of God for me to be in this situation because... This is hard. This is painful. I've had to really sacrifice here, and we're going without, and everybody around us has an abundance, and and we're in need because we've had to live sacrificially over here. Is God mad at us? Why did he not give us back ten times what we just gave away? Why is that not working out? At times, the will of God is going to feel like this can't be right because this isn't fair. Peter went on to say in 1 Peter 2, 19, You might have to suffer even when you've done nothing wrong. If you think of God and bear the pain, this pleases God. And if you suffer for doing good and you are patient, this pleases God. Sometimes the will of God is it going to feel like this safe, easy, happy place. Have you heard people say, I've heard people say this in church, heard people in teaching like I'm doing right now, say, you know, the safest place you can be is right in the middle of the will of God. That sounds and preaches great, and it's foolishness. I mean, what do we mean that that the middle of the will of God is the safest place that we can be? I mean, if getting the tarnation beaten out of you 
if being beaten with rods, beaten with, with a cat of nine tails, if being stoned until it looks like you're dead and they think you're dead and they leave you lying there bleeding out, if being locked up, it, if that's the safest place, then yes, the will of God is the safest place that you can be. Are you with me? We've been told a message that doesn't line up very well with the New Testament. Third truth is that followers of Jesus, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this may be the hardest one for us to swallow, so buckle up. Followers of Jesus give up their rights to take offense or to defend their rights. I'm going to say that one again because it's a mouthful. Followers of Jesus give up their rights to take offense, personal offense, or to defend their own rights. The one verse, and if, like if you had to just list just ten individual verses from the New Testament that define what it means to be a Christian, I think you have to include this in the, in the ten core verses. Verse 24, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What, what does he mean by that? Deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me. He is not saying that you're going to have to physically bleed and die across the board to be a Christian. That's clearly not what he's teaching. And yet he's saying you all have to bear the cross. What's that about? Well, cross is only good for one thing, a first century cross. I know we love to decorate our homes and our jewelry. I think first century. Cross only accomplished one thing, and that was to kill people. It's an instrument of death. That's why Jesus is using that as the picture. He's going to literally die on the cross, but he's saying all of you are going to have to, if you follow me, you're going to have to do this incredible daily challenge of denying yourself, dying to self, so that I can live through you. Because it's human nature, it's true for every single one of us in the room, everybody who's watching and listening online, we all want to live to satisfy ourselves. I want a comfortable life. I want an easy life. I, I want some measure of wealth, some measure of comfort. I want my life to, to be easy. Don't judge me because you do too, right? Are you with me? Are you all just a bunch of super spiritual giants? I mean, we're, we're all in this together, aren't we? We're, we're wrestling with selfishness. And Jesus is saying the daily struggle, the reason you have to daily take up the cross is Every day you have to make choices to deny yourself and what you would have done to keep control or to make the life you wanted for yourself and to make lots of little sacrifices and sometimes really big sacrifices for the glory of God and for the good of others. But when you really begin to understand what it means to live a life of denying self and taking up the cross, you come to the realization dead people don't have any rights at all. They don't have any rights to defend, and they don't have any cause to take offense over anything. I can't remember in 52-plus years of, of living any time when I have seen more people, including Christians, more bowed up, taking offense over more things, defending their rights. I mean, is it not just insanity how much we are defending our rights? I'm just going to be painfully candid with you. If you're a pagan, you can defend your rights all day long, and I can't argue with you. If you're a follower of Jesus and you need to defend your rights, I want to say shut up in Jesus' name. 
stop. Dead people don't have rights to defend. We need to get over ourselves and stop getting offended about everything and, and defending ourselves. And it's happening at every level. White people getting offended because people say black lives matter. And people who are in the Black Lives Matter movement getting offended when people say in response white lives matter or all lives matter. Can I just say to all sides, if you're offended, you're in the wrong. If I'm offended, I'm in the wrong because we no longer get to take offense, personal offense. What we get to do is affirm, you're all right. Black lives matter. Yes, they do. White lives matter. Yes, they do. Brown lives matter. All lives matter. We agree with all of you. What we don't get to do is to get bowed up and defend ourselves and say, well, who are you to judge me? I never had a slave. I never blah, blah, blah. And to take offense. Dead people don't get to take offense and defend themselves. Why? Because the one whose example we follow never defended himself. He defended the oppressed. He defended the, the weakest. He defended those who were marginalized, and he never defended himself. He never bowed up and took personal offense. He got angry about injustice. He got angry about people who, in the name of religion, behaved horribly, and he got in their faces. But he did not get offended and defensive for himself. And as the followers of Jesus, part of selfless living is realizing, I don't get to defend myself. The Freedom Family knows this well, Graceport. I'll, I'll share it, just being transparent with you. I went through the hardest season in my life. It, it really came to a head nine years ago. A 24-year marriage came to an end. Nine years ago, my wife and I ended up going in separate directions. That ended in divorce. And a part of that process involved some very difficult decisions. I had the opportunity as a pastor, and I mean, there, there's no good situation for anybody to be divorced in. It's painful for anybody in any circumstances, but I want to tell you, I'd rather been anything but a pastor at the time. It is, that is not a good profession to have going through a divorce. I had the opportunity to stand and explain things, and I chose not to, and I've never regretted that. It would have been wrong to do that for a lot of reasons. For one, I could have stood and told my side of the story, and everybody would have sympathized with me. That's not fair, and it's only okay for us to confess our own sins. It's never okay for us to go and confess somebody else's sins. And for me to have stood and told my story and my side of things would have been divisive and wrong. And so I followed the counsel of the Holy Spirit not to tell the story, just to live with the consequences. Well, part of the consequence of that was having to resign the church that I had founded and, and led, what's now Three Circle Church. Part of the spillover from that is not standing and telling my story in the absence of the truth being told People made up their own version of the story. I mean, stuff that to this day I've never figured out where in the world you came up with material for this. But it was amazing over not just months but over years how many different stories that I heard about myself. I mean, I came to 
realize it would have taken three of me to do all the things that was reported to have been done. And at so many instances along the way, the flesh in me wanted to run and defend myself, to run and set the record straight. And every time the Holy Spirit would say, remember what I told you. You let me guard your back. You don't run around straightening anybody out because you don't have any, anything left to defend. You don't have any rights to defend. You just live your life. Let your integrity speak for itself, and you let me take care of you. But you don't get to defend yourself in this. There were some really, really awkward moments. People that I'd meet on the street that I'd never had a crossword with, and they would be really ugly. Or I'll never forget one day sitting in Jewelwins. I love to eat breakfast at Jewelwins. And I remember sitting in Jewelwins, and a few tables away, a group of guys that frequent Jewelwins and sit at the big table, and, and they are telling my story or the version of us of it that different ones had heard and they they spend most of their breakfast telling my story not having any idea who i am or that i'm sitting right there listening to my whole story now it's inaccurate from start to finish i can't tell you how much you want to get up and go over there and say boys would y'all like for me to set the record straight would you like to and yet the holy spirit's going no if you are truly dead to yourself you don't have anything left to defend if anything, what remains to be done is there's more of you that needs to die. I will tell you, that's not fun, but it is healthy. There's so much of a selfish, rotten old sinner still left in me that needs to die every day, that needs to die. I hate that divorce and, and all of the stuff that went with that had to be a part of the process, but I'll tell you one of the good things that comes through that is it, it helps to expose that in us. And it, and it just brings to the surface what I need, the grace of God and the instruction of the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit to come to bear to deal with me. And, and it brings passages like Jesus speaking in Matthew five thirty eight and following to light and, and just puts flesh on it where he said, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's where you know, we think we should get justice. We should have our day to tell our story. And Jesus said, but I tell you, don't fight back against someone who wants to do harm to you. If they hit you on the right cheek, let them hit the other cheek too. If anyone wants to sue you in court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. If a soldier forces you to walk with him one mile, go with him too. Give to anyone who asks you for something. Do not refuse to give to anyone who wants to borrow from you. That doesn't ever get a resounding amen, does it? I've never heard of Brad. I mean, I've never, ever read that passage and heard anybody say, yes, amen. We all just go, oh, me. Oh. Can that really be a part of this gospel message? That's what it looks like to die to self. You don't get to defend yourself because it's not about us. Well, the fourth and final thing that I'll share from this passage is the good news in it, and that is that we discover great joy and freedom in sacrificially living for the good of others and for the glory of God. And ultimately, that, that should be our aim in everything. I just want to live my life for the glory of God and for the good of others, and that's going to require selfless, sacrificial living. Our culture has constantly been teaching us to look out for number one, 
protect yourself, protect your family, and do what you can over time to increase your standard of living and the comfort of your life. The culture reinforces that in countless ways, and it is completely counter to this idea of selfless living. But the, the surprise is that there's great joy in embracing this life. Jesus goes on to say, any of you who try to save your life, the life that you have will lose it. Again, he's not necessarily talking about physically dying, but he's saying if you live your life, to, I, I've got to keep control and I've got to hold on to my assets and my comfort. He says if that's how you live your life, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to give up your life for me, you will find true life. And he goes on to say at the end, the Son of Man will come again with his Father's glory and with his angels, and he will reward everyone for what they have done. He's reminding us. That when we learn to live selflessly, there is an eternal reward that is credited to our account, and we will experience that for all of eternity. And it will have been well worth the sacrifice. I want to just quickly read through these final three passages that speak to this joy that we experience. In Acts 5, when the, the apostles, shortly after the ascension of Jesus, they keep getting in trouble and getting beaten and locked up. And every time they get turned loose they're more full of joy and more committed than ever before and in acts 5 that's happened again and it says verse 41 the apostles left the council and they were happy they'd just been beaten just been tortured but they're happy because god had considered them worthy to suffer for the sake of jesus how could they be happy about that they're happy because they had been under Jesus' teaching when he said things like Luke 6, 2, 22, and 23. When Jesus said, people will hate you because you belong to the Son of Man. They'll make you leave their group. They will insult you. They will think it's wrong to even say your name. And when those things happen, know that great blessings belong to you. You can be happy and jump for joy because you have a great reward in heaven. When you live at that level, you just know that you are being elevated in terms of what you're going to experience for all of eternity. And we'll end with Peter. Peter who just tripped all over himself in the passage we read in Matthew 16. And yet a few decades passed and he fully understands this whole thing of of suffering for the cause of Christ and the joy that comes with it. And he says, my friends, don't be surprised at the painful things that you're now suffering, which are testing your faith. Don't think that something strange is happening to you, but you should be happy that you're sharing in Christ's sufferings. You will be happy and full of joy when Christ shows his glory. When people say bad things to you because you follow Christ, consider it a blessing when that happens, it shows that God's Spirit, the Spirit of glory, is within you. It doesn't make sense on the surface of it, does it? I mean, can we just be that honest? When Jesus says, when you live for me and you experience great hardship, you can just jump for joy. We read that and go, what was Jesus smoking on that day? Jump for joy about suffering and sacrifice? And he's saying, there is this place where that is totally what you will experience. It is reality. There is this place of great joy, and I'm telling you, I see it so clearly every time we go to Africa. I've seen it in multiple places, but I seem to see it most clearly every time we're in Africa, and we see our brothers and sisters who are giving up so much. They're living so selflessly, and yet they just have this joy that's contagious. I mean, I come back to America going, I'm going back to all of my stuff and all of my comfort, but I want what they've got. I mean, they've just got this joy that every time I'm there the first day with them, I can't keep the tears off of my cheeks because I'm so moved by what just the, the heart and the joy that they have. And I'm thinking, they don't have anything, but they've got so much. 
Because they're living in the reality that Jesus is talking about. A place of great joy where you're not going, I just can't believe Jesus would expect this of me. No, they're going, we have an opportunity to serve Jesus again. Here's another place that we can make a difference. It's going to cost us something, but oh, the joy, oh, the reward. Friends, is not being taught in the American church, but we don't need to be afraid of it. We've come to a place where we've gotten way too comfortable with a, a convenient and comfortable version of the gospel. It's led us to have a real non-committal version of Christian culture where we're, we're taught that all of these other things are the prizes that come with following Jesus. Let's just forget that and agree together. Jesus is the great prize. Jesus is your great reward. We don't seek after suffering. We don't chase after pain. That would be foolish and, and just nutty. But the goal is that we would love people and love God so much that we'd be willing to make sacrifices, that we would give what we can't afford to give, that we would go to places that are dangerous. I know, Grace Fort folks, you're probably already sick of hearing me talk about Nigeria. Forgive me. It's not going to go away. We, we're called, among other places, to Nigeria. We're called to places like Mexico and Guatemala and, and other uh, regions. I know you guys are involved uh, in, uh, is it Honduras? Honduras. Awesome. We get it. It's costly to do these things. Last time I checked, Nigeria is number six of the nations of the world as far as being the sixth most dangerous place to go on earth in terms of terrorism. When God first started calling us to Nigeria, I'm thinking, God, there's got to be a safer place that you'd want to... I mean, do you really want to take us there? And the Holy Spirit immediately reminds me, when did you think you signed up for something safe? And And... Now we're just at that place of going, God, how soon can we go? We were supposed to go next month. How soon are they going to lift the restrictions so that we can go? We're not going so that we can suffer. We're going because these people matter. But ultimately, because we love Jesus, this is the driving thing. He is our great prize. He is our great reward. And out of love for him, is there any price that's, that's too high to pay? Would you join me as we turn to him together in prayer? Oh, Jesus, you are good. You are worthy. You're worth our best. You're worth our all. You're worth our very lives. And together with one voice, we say to you, please forgive us. Please forgive us for the countless times when we've chosen easy and convenient. Forgive us for the times when we've wanted to defend ourselves and defend our rights. Please teach us what it means to live at an outrageous level of selflessness. Teach us what it means to deny ourselves and to truly take up the cross every day. Would you teach us to live that way in our marriages, in our homes? It may be that as you've listened today, you've just really been wrestling with, for the very first time, embracing Jesus and his call to be a follower of his. You don't have to study or train for that. If that's something that you'd like to do, it does begin with a simple commitment, an opening of your heart to him. And If you want to do that, why don't you just say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I need your forgiveness. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. And I'm asking you now to live in me to change me and to direct my life.
some of us are at a place we know Christ, but we've become way too comfortable in how we live. Why don't you pray a dangerous prayer that says, Jesus, I give myself over to you. I want to live for your glory and for the good of others. Whatever the cost, I offer myself, my time, and my resources to you. Father, I thank you that you honor us with your call. Thank you for making us a part of your family. And we commit ourselves, our lives, our families, and our churches to you again. Bring glory to yourself by the work that you do in and among us. We pray with grateful hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.